Please turn to Ezra chapter 9, and I'll be reading verses 1 and 2. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they, have taken some, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives and themselves, for they have taken some of the daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Good evening. Oh, there we go. Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. We're very glad to be with you and thankful for your presence here this evening. Before we get started, uh, let me just make a couple of distinctions that I think are important about what it is we're going to discuss. And we're going to talk tonight about holiness, and full title would be Restoring Holiness or God's People to Holiness. But before we go there, let me just offer this very quickly. When you're reading the Bible and studying it, we come tonight and we are among God's faithful people. It's important to distinguish when you're reading the Bible whether or not God is talking to his unfaithful children or his faithful children. And the mistake sometimes is you preach God's word where God is talking to his unfaithful children and either rebuking or reproving or exhorting them, and you preach it to God's faithful children. And what God's faithful children will do is take the message because of their faithfulness and because of the goodness of their hearts and the fact that they're trying to live for God, they will take that message and they will try to live it out in their lives. The problem is they're already faithful. And so here is a message to become faithful. And they will take that message and they will try harder to be faithful. Really, there's very little more they could do because they're already faithful. And so the message tonight is not necessarily to you. It's more of a study of holiness, and God is talking to his unfaithful children and moving them to holiness. But I wouldn't want you good-hearted people who are already faithful to hear me saying you're unholy, because that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what you are. But if we don't say these words, Given the goodness of your heart, what would you do? You'd meet me at the back and say, good sermon. I really <laughs> appreciated that. That was just, just what I needed. It's not necessarily just what you need. However, if we are struggling in this area, individually so, then we take these passages written to God's unfaithful children. We preach them to God's faithful children as a reminder and an exhortation to remember to continue to be faithful. The book of Ezra is near the end of the Old Testament, actually. Old Testament history, that is. And they have come back from captivity, and they're trying to restore properly those things that lead them to be God's people. The temple, the restoring of the law, building up of the walls, all of these things are being done. And Ezra, the ready scribe in God's word, is going to bring God's people back to his word and again restore holiness. Holiness is a huge part of our understanding and our interaction with God because God is holy. And God, therefore, calls upon his people 
to be holy. Being holy is not optional. It's required. God's simple expression is, be ye holy, for I am holy. It's really the premise. And so this evening, in our study of the subject, we'll talk about the beginning of holiness, the loss of holiness, how holiness is restored, and why or some reasons holiness must be restored. Let's not begin in Ezra, though, for point number one, the beginning of holiness. If you have your Bible, join me in the book of Genesis. Someone has told me, I believe Genesis is your favorite book in the Bible. I've never told them that. They just heard me preach. And inevitably, it seems like I'm in Genesis. Well, it's the book of beginnings, and so this would be a good place to start. The beginning of holiness, holiness begins with God. The divine nature is holy. And since God is eternal, therefore holiness is eternal. God is eternally holy. God's divine nature is separate from sin. That really is the idea behind holiness. In describing God, John says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The revelation extols the holiness of God. The four beasts, chapter 4 of that book in verse number 8, had each of them six wings about him. They were full of eyes within. They rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The idea, the word, means separate. That's really behind it. And for a very good description of that, Jesus is explained or expressed in these words in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. The holy God created the world, and that world then and those individuals within it to have a relationship with him, holiness is demanded. When we speak about Adam and Eve, we often say they were perfect. That's true. We also say they were without sin. And for a time in their life, both of those things are absolutely the case. What we don't often say is because they were perfect and because they were without sin, Adam and Eve were holy. And to understand the need to restore God's people to holiness, we must understand where it began, and how it was lost. And so let's begin here in the book of Genesis talking about Adam and Eve and holiness. As I was writing the material, it occurred to me, and I trust that it's correct, that Adam and Eve were holy in a way that has never again been experienced by adult people. Adam and Eve were perfect. Their holiness can be seen in chapter 2 and verse 25. The Bible says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Holiness allows communion with God. In fact, we hear of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, sharing holiness with Adam and Eve. Holiness is oneness with God. That's what's happening. At this time, Adam and Eve were separate from sin. In that regard, just like God, they'd never known sin. Genesis chapter 3 is when unholiness is introduced. I would urge that on some level, unholiness is idolatry. It's dethroning God and putting self on the throne of our hearts. 
Let's look closely at chapter 3 and notice, first of all, Satan's suggestion in the first three verses. The serpent was more crafty or subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Eve understood what God had said. Satan is going to suggest that maybe God is withholding something from you. Eve understood it. The woman said to the servant, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may, we may eat. We may freely eat, some renderings say. Now, later, she will say, we cannot touch it. God said we can eat of it, but verse number three, the fruit of the tree was in the midst of the garden. God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. On the one hand, it's rather obvious you can't eat anything without touching it on some level. But actually, I never find the words where God said that. I don't know where God said you cannot touch it, but somewhere between 2, 15, and 17, and, and, and chapter 3 and verse, verse 4 or 3, that phrase is part of the dynamic, we can't touch it. It doesn't appear necessarily that God said that, but that's certainly what Eve believes. Satan lies in verse number 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In fact, by his suggestion, he is emanating on some level that God is lying, actually. You see, he's holding something, withholding it from you, first of all, and secondly, he's lying. You're not actually going to die. The fact is, if God had lied, then God would be unholy. And how sad is it that unholy Satan is suggesting that God is unholy? God is actually brought into question, his character, his goodness, and whether or not he's telling the truth with regards to Eve. She is presented with a lie and given assurances and promises, you will not die. And as we progress through the four or five next verses, the pronouns helps us understand who moved from being holy to become unholy. The move from holiness to unholiness begins in our hearts, and that's where it began with Eve. Eve said, first of all, we may eat. Then she said, God has said. Satan said, you will not surely die. In fact, Satan goes further and says in verse number five, for God knows. Now, the fact is God knows everything which can be known. But Satan is suggesting that God knows something, but he's not telling you. He actually knows the truth, but he's lying to you. And so he says, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The seeds of doubt have been planted into the heart of Eve. The character of God has been impugned. The lie of the devil has watered the seed of doubt, and now all things are ready for the harvest. We might say the car is gassed up, the GPS has mapped the directions, the destination is on holiness, and we are on our way. The word and is used frequently in the next several verses, and that word helps us understand why she did what she did, why we moved from holiness to unholiness. In verse number five, God knows in the day you eat, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. When? 
predicated upon all that came before it. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate. And she gave to her husband with her and he did eat. Our journey is now complete. We have arrived and reached our destination of unholiness. Life after that is dramatically different. Immediately, its effects are felt. Verse number 7 says, The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings or aprons. There was a lie, there was lust, and now it has to be lived. You can see very clearly the line of demarcation from holiness to unholiness. Chapter 2 and verse 25, they were naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3 and verse number 7, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Immediately, shame is felt. They sew fig leaves together and make themselves coverings. The word means a belt for the waist, a girdle or apron. The purpose of the fig leaves is to cover or to conceal their bodies. It's interesting that their bodies need to be covered now because their minds have been exposed. When the mind was clean, separate, and pure, there was no need for shame to cover the body. Now that they have sinned, the opposite has occurred. The book of Job is said actually to be written in the time of the patriarchs. Most believe somewhere right before Abraham in that area. I only bring that up because in that time, when Job talked about himself and the things he had did, and did, he mentioned Adam. In chapter 31 and verse 33, as he seeks to vindicate himself, he says this, If I covered my transgressions as Adam— by hiding mine iniquity in my bosom. The word iniquity means like a twisted rope, the result of something being twisted. It goes on to say actions that are perverse, guilty, or morally evil. That's where Adam and Eve are now. They know good and evil. The word good, here's what it means, pleasant or grace. And then it says, something that functions properly. On the other hand, the word evil means bad or something dysfunctional, wrong, evil, or wicked. In other words, holiness is us functioning properly. Unholiness is dysfunctional. Lust, it's a present lie with promises of future benefits. Here is the sad irony of our lost holiness in this regard. They actually were like God. In chapter 2 and verse 25, physical adults, no human has ever been more like God than Adam and Eve. Absolutely perfect, absolutely sinless. What did she want to become? Satan said, if you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. She actually was. But by believing the lie, 
lusting and taking the fruit. She took God off the throne of her heart. She put herself on the throne, yielded to sin, and she became her own God. In so doing, she actually stopped being like God. She started to be unholy like the devil. Lust for the forbidden cost us the good that we already have. Sin is always the first idol we worship is self. In Romans chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, in describing humanity, Paul says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like. What's the image, Paul? Made like to corruptible man. God's unholiness, however, is not changed by man's unholiness, or God's holiness, rather, is not changed by man's unholiness. What does God do in this scenario? God keeps being holy. In fact, God immediately provides provisions for the relationship to continue. He first covered Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, 20 and 21, some believe shedding blood on their behalf. But he continued to provide the means for communion, Genesis chapter 4, sacrifice, access, and allows for holiness. Shed blood becomes the medium for us to restore the relationship with God. Unfortunately, humanity continued to choose self over God. See Genesis 6 through 10, and that's why the flood comes. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart, only evil continually. What does God do? He keeps providing a way for us to return to him. Ultimately, it would be Christ coming, Genesis 3 and verse number 15, the seed of woman. In Christ is our ultimate restoration. He will overcome sin for us, and holiness through his, he will die to restore holiness. In fact, the Hebrew writer in chapter 7 and verse 26 described him in just those terms as holy, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. As you read through the Bible, under the law of Moses, this continues. The shedding of blood, Hebrews 9, 22, and almost all things that are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. However, the law was limited. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, Hebrews 10 and verse number 4. As you progress through the Bible, that's what's happening. God's trying to restore holiness. Sometimes in discussions of holiness, we'll say things like association with God makes something holy. We say that, and on some level, that's absolutely right. It's true, but there's two parts to that thought. The first one is this. Things associated with God become holy. And so it's not, it's not strange to read about holy ground, Exodus 3, 1 to 5. But then there are also holy garments, Exodus 28, verses 1 to 4. And then there's holy oil, Exodus 30, 25 to 29. There's also a holy temple, Psalm 5, 7, a holy mountain, Exodus 19, 1 to 3, a holy city, Matthew 4, 5, a holy day, Exodus 16, 23. And so if one says, well, when things are associated with God, they become holy, that's absolutely true. But things don't have volition. And so if God is present, the thing becomes holy. That's absolutely right. Here's the second thought. People aren't things. 
Therefore, people are not pronounced holy the same way things are. People can be associated with God and be unholy. See Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 8 to 10. See Israel, the nation, Isaiah 1, 1 to 15. Things can be pronounced holy because they have no part to play. But people do have a part to play. And so people are commanded to be holy. People are charged to stay holy because unlike the ground and the clothes and the oil, we can always choose to become unholy. In order then for people to be holy, it takes two things. It takes association with God and submission to God. When we go to the book of Ezra momentarily, we will get there because they are God's people. Israel was God's holy nation. The reason we get to Israel is every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil. And we see Romans chapter 1, after the flood, they refused to retain God in their knowledge, Romans 1, 18 to 32. And so they caused God to give them up, Romans 1. He gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them over. And so what God did was call Abram, out of idolatry, Joshua 24, 1 and 2 made him promises, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And from his seed, Genesis 15, 6, God would bring about a nation. Abraham's descendants would be God's holy people. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, Moses says to Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings. And I brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then, if, then, if you obey, if you keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. For God's people, holiness is conditional then. In order to be holy, one first of all has to be saved. That's the association. Saved people are associated with God. They're brought near to God. That's Israel. Exodus chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. There is a sense in which the salvation also is the setting apart. There is a sense in which that's the case. And so on some level, by being saved, you become holy and you become set apart to God. That's absolutely true. The second part, however, is God then calls upon his people to continue to be holy. It's called sanctification. Even in the old covenant, that was the expectation. Submission. Now that you have been saved, submit. Listen to it in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. Now, bear in mind, they've been brought out of Egyptian bondage. They are God's people. They are therefore saved and set apart. But listen to what God says. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. It's expressly because you're mine that you consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy. 
for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with the swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy. Wait, they already are. Yes, they already are. And yet the charge is not just association salvation, but also sanctification, living a life reflective of the relationship that we have. Why? For I am holy. How do we get to Ezra? Israel refused. Israel refused to submit to God. They championed the association. They relished the association. We are God's people, but they refused to submit. From the beginning, God commanded, thou shalt have no other gods before me, Exodus 23. What was Israel's undoing? Idolatry. Idolatry wasn't just relics and statues and images. The problem is their heart was given to something else and someone else. Lust, doubting God, unthankfulness, wanting the forbidden self, that was the problem. All of the things that Eve did. Enthroning self and dethroning God. The images were simply the physical manifestation of an unholy heart. How much of Scripture is a plea from God for the hearts of his people? Over and over again, that is the plea. The period of the judges, how is it described or characterized? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. After that period, what did they say? Give us a king. 1 Samuel 8, verse 4 and verse number 5. All the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah. They said unto him, Behold, thou art old. Thy sons walk not in thy ways now. Make us a king to judge us. How? Like all the nations. Samuel was grieved by this decision, cried to God. God told him, Give them what they want. Tell them how it would be. He did. In fact, if you will read the 8th chapter of Samuel, what you'll find is this phrase frequently. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. After all of the warnings, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. After the kings and during the kings, what happened? The prophets called. What did they do? They called God's people or they tried back to holiness. Joshua or Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse number 13, Jeremiah says, For from the least of them even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness, and from the prophet even unto the priest, everyone deal it falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people, slightly saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed? When they had committed abomination, nay, they were not ashamed at all, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall at the time I will visit them. They shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see. Ask for the old paths, and where is the good way? Walk therein. Ye shall find rest for your souls. And they said, we will not walk therein. God pled and pled for Israel, their entire history, to give him their heart. To be holy as he was holy. And they refused. 
the New Testament writers concerning Old Testament Israel, Paul said in Romans chapter 2, they did the same things as the Gentiles. The Hebrew writer penned these words in chapter 3 of his book in verse 10, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Israel refused, rejected, and renounced God, and idolatry ruined the nation. Solomon divided the northern kingdom, or divided the kingdom, and the northern kingdom was idolatrous its entire existence. The southern kingdom watched and then did the exact same thing. The result was the northern kingdom went into captivity, the southern kingdom after that. And by the time we get to the book of Ezra, thank you for your patience, that was the long introduction. <laughs> by the time we get to Ezra, they had become like all the nations around them. They were idolatrous, ungodly, unholy, just like all the nations. In Ezra, they have returned from captivity. Idolatry has been put away. They are now in the very process when we reach chapter 9 of trying to give their hearts back to God. Ezra is seeking to restore holiness. If you have your Bibles there in Exodus chapter 9, or Ezra chapter 9 rather, note with me these first 10 verses. There is first of all this charge, and the words that stand out indicate the problem. Notice in verse number 1, now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves. They've not done that. They have not separated themselves. In fact, he says, from the peoples of the land, according to their abominations, they're doing the same thing. In verse number two, he says, they have taken some of their daughters. In verse number two, he also says, they have, the holy seed has been intermingled with them. Sadly, he says, the leaders, the heads of the princes, the rulers are foremost in this sin. What you have next is Ezra's reaction to that charge. In verse number 3, he says, when I heard it, I tore my garments. Verse number 4 says, everyone who trembled at the words of the Lord. Verse number 5, he says, I arose from my humiliation. I fell to the Lord my God. He says, I said, O Lord, I am ashamed or embarrassed to lift up my face for our guilt. Verse number six, he says, our guilt has grown, iniquities risen above our heads. In verse number seven, he says, we have been in great guilt. Verse eight, grace has been shown and a reviving God has offered. Verse number nine, he says, God has not forsaken us despite ourselves. And finally, in verse number 10, he says, we have forsaken your commandments. Verse number 11, which you have commanded. What Ezra is seeing and experiencing is he knows the history and how we went into captivity in the first place, and now right before him, he's hearing and seeing the exact same thing. And he's moved to restore God's people to holiness. How did he do it? The first thing 
is in verse number two. In order to restore holiness, we have to admit unholiness. Verse number two, it's admitted. They have taken some of their daughters as wives, for they themselves as their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Ezra says, that's what has happened. I acknowledge it. I admit it. Intermingled is a good word here. It means to exchange an item or service for another, to mix, as in mixing one thing with another. It's going to be impossible to restore anything if the need of restoration is not acknowledged and admitted. It took them going into captivity before Israel was willing to admit, yes, we have a problem. And even right now, he sees it again. If we as God's people, if we have become unholy, if that happens within the church, by the intermingling of the Holy Seed spiritually with the things of the world, if we ever hope to get out of that dynamic, we would first have to admit it has happened. The nation that surrounds Christ's church is as big a threat to holiness as the nations in the land that surrounded Israel. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and verse number 2, you hear Paul's plea to the brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Do not Allow yourself to fall into the mold and be shaped and to be pressed like the world. 2 Timothy 2 and verse number 4, No soldier on service entangle himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enrolled him as a soldier. The second thing that Ezra does in verse number 3 is he mourned and he wept over unholiness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard, and sat down appalled. He mourned. Acknowledgement is first, followed by sorrow and sadness. The fruit of repentance can only grow when it is planted in the soil of godly sorrow. Throughout their history, they had turned away from God. There are rare occasions where a revival was had, but every revival came when someone sorrowed over sin. When they realized it, acknowledged it, became sorry for it, wept over it, and finally mourned, then they changed. The third thing that Ezra does in verse number four is he calls upon those who fear the Lord. That's what has to be done. Everyone who trembled at the words of the Lord of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness, he gathered to me. Only a proper approach to God will restore holiness. God always uses himself as the proper motivation. His person, I am God Almighty. His presence, I'm with you. His power, I am all-powerful. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. Or his proclamation, I have spoken, thus saith the Lord. Or his character, be holy for I am holy. But where there is no fear of the Lord, there can be no holiness for the Lord. And if holiness is ever going to be restored, if it needs to be, it will be because people began again to approach God with reverence and awe and fear. 
the next thing Ezra did was pray. That's verse 5 down to verse number 10. And if you read those passages, what you'll find is the first part of verse number A, verse number 5 is he was humble. The Bible says he fell on his knees. The second thing that's noteworthy is he was reverent. He said, oh my God, in verse number 6. Thirdly, he was sorrowful. I am ashamed and embarrassed. And then he was honest in verse number 7. We have done this, 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 and this. And he was grateful, verse 8, verse 9. God, you have been much better to us than we've been to ourselves. Ezra then finally was committed to change. Verse number 10, now we won't take the time to read the rest of the chapter and into the 10th chapter, but if you did, you will find that Ezra put a plan in place and they solved this problem. They all met, they all discussed, and there were actions put in place to restore holiness. Let me close with three thoughts as to why it needs to be restored. Three parts for Old Testament Israel would be this. Number one, communion with God. God will not commune with unholiness. Number two, it's the charge of God. They were to show God to the world, and the world was to find God through them. They could have done that. But number three, it was the coming of Jesus, specifically for them, the holy seed. They were the ones, they were the vehicle through which God the Christ was going to be born into the world and take away the sin of the world. That's John's preparation. It's how the Old Testament ends, Malachi 4, 4 through 6. The forerunner is coming. He's coming for prepared people, to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. With regards to the church, it would be the same three points. If the church ever is in need of restoring holiness, the same three points would apply. Number one, communion with God. We can no longer or no more commune with God in New Testament Israel than they could in Old Testament Israel by being unholy. Number two, it's the charge of God. We are to go into all the world, and the world is to see our light and then be drawn to God. That's Matthew 5, 16. It's the charge of God. But then thirdly, it's the coming of Christ. Now, while they were instrumental in Christ's coming the first time, we need to be holy because Christ is coming a second time. And Christ is coming for a prepared people, a holy seed, to take them home with he and the Father. Restoring holiness. For Ezra, it was an absolutely essential thing. And Maybe today in some places, maybe among some members, maybe among some congregations, there is a need to restore holiness again. And if it be so, then it will be done the same way Ezra did it. You're not a member of the Lord's body. It's not the way we would talk about it. We wouldn't go around telling you necessarily that you need to be holy. We would tell you you need to be saved. But you should understand it's by being saved that you become set apart as a one who is in the family of God and thus holy the charge would be to continue to be holy. If you've never done the first thing, then friends, you need to do that. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Change your heart and your mind. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water, buried with him for the forgiveness of sins. And if you are his child, the charge begins there as well. Be holy, for I am holy. Let us make sure that God maintains, controls, and rule of our hearts. Let us not give that to another, 
not even ourselves. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.